in some cases, the communicator understands, not in a psychological way, but a relatively primitive way, you know, how to frame their message to get us to agree. In this case, to agree to something that is not in our best interest. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. In the 2015 movie, The Stanford Prison Experiment, a college student randomly chosen to play the role of prisoner 8612 breaks down over his treatment by a mock guard named John Wayne. Actor Billy Crudup, playing Dr. Philip Zimbardo, brings an end to an argument between two of his research associates about how to handle the students, saying, I think you guys are both missing the point. The only thing that separates those two was a coin flip. Today we're joined by Phil Zimbardo, who talks with us about the other side of the coin of his experiment into what happens when good people are put into an evil place. Namely, his current research exploring the heroism of those who have the courage to disobey unjust authority figures. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Phil Zimbardo. Hello, greetings. I'm Phil Zimbardo coming to you from San Francisco, California, USA. A little bit about my background. Uh, I was born in the South Bronx on March 23, 1933. I grew up in an uneducated Sicilian family in the South Bronx in New York. And certainly at that time, it was a ghetto uh, with mostly immigrants. Uh, All the people our current president wants to not allow in, but America is all immigrants minus some Indians who were here first. So I went to Brooklyn College um, for my undergraduate degree, and then Yale University for my master's and PhD, and I graduated in 1959. My first job was at New York University, and then I also taught one year at Columbia and Barnard. And uh, from there, in 1968, I was blessed by being invited to come to Stanford University as a full professor. Which with tenure, which was a big jump because at NYU, I was uh, an associate professor without tenure. And then I was at Stanford for, I guess, 40 years. And after retiring, I taught for about seven years at Palo Alto University, uh, which is a clinical training program. And I taught social psychology for clinicians. Now in my retirement era, I have switched my focus from trying to understand the psychology of evil to inspiring, promoting, and training young people around the world to become everyday heroes as part of what I call my Heroic Imagination Project, which is a San Francisco-based nonprofit foundation. That brings us up to date. Heuristics such as I before E except after C are mental shortcuts that can help speed up decision-making, simultaneously reducing the cognitive load of doing so. 
However, heuristics can sometimes be wrong. The spelling of weird and science, for instance, don't follow the I before E rule of thumb. Doug and I began our conversation with Phil by asking for his thoughts on how heuristics inform our decisions to obey or disobey authority figures. He framed his response by referencing two cornerstones of social psychology research. Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman's study of how cognitive biases associated with heuristics can impair our decision-making, and Stanley Milgram's behavioral study of obedience, in which participants were led to believe that they had to administer electric shocks, which, had they been real, would have been fatal. Amos Tversky um, was a professor at Stanford, and Danny Kahneman was a professor at Berkeley. They're both Israeli, uh, and they're incredible collaborators. And much of their research data came from my big introductory psychology class. All of their research, for which Danny won the Nobel Prize because Amos had died, and the Nobel Prize is only given to living scientists, but they used my students in introductory psych because all of their research is posing questions under this condition, we do A or B. And again, Amos was probably the most brilliant person I have ever met, a true, really true genius. He died well before his time. But again, it's heuristic, shortcuts that we all use in thinking. You know, the world is very complex and, and full of mental cognitive complexity. Uh, and we use shortcuts to simplify our, our decision. And many times those shortcuts help, and many times they lead you in, in the wrong direction. And sometimes when we are listening to a, a communicator, a political communicator, a salesman, we sometimes use mental heuristics to process their message. First of all, we want to simplify a long message. And in some cases, the communicator understands, in, not in a psychological way, but a relatively primitive way, you know, how to frame their message to get us to agree. And in this case, to agree to something that is not in our best interest. So, for example, in the Milgram's classic study on obedience, and again, Stanley Milgram and Phil Zimbardo were in the same high school class at James Monroe High School in the Bronx in 1949, 1950. In his study, the heuristic was somebody in authority tells you to do something which is good for society. So once you put it, that frame on it, then you're not really paying attention to what he's saying is, we want you to help this person uh, improve his memory by hurting him, by shocking him, maybe even in the end, even killing him. So in Milgram's study, the authority asked you to do something that went against your conscience to deliver increasingly painful electric shocks to another person who is just like you. In his study, if you remember, it was a he tested a thousand men ages 20 to 50 from New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale University is. He was a professor at Yale, beginning professor. And so two out of every three people went all the way to 450 volts, maximum shock, despite the fact that the other person is yelling and screaming and saying, I don't want to go on. Uh, and so here the heuristic is an authority tells you to do something which is going to help science understand the nature of memory. You're going to help by hurting is the bottom line. Though Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, introduced many people to the idea that context influences human behavior, this context effect has been much studied in cognitive psychology over the past 20 years. Here, Phil describes how the power of social situations can provide a context which leads people to say one thing, but do another. Everybody underestimates 
the power of social situations. That is the power of other people physically present, even if they're strangers, that they have on you. Everybody likes to think that all the decisions are made based on free will, freedom of choice, appropriately weighing the alternatives, uh, when in fact that's almost never the case. So that uh, in studies like Milgram's or in, in our study, when you ask people, what would you do? A hundred percent, almost a hundred percent of people say, I would disobey. Or in more recent research that I'm doing with my heroic imagination project, we show people a video. A woman is lying on the steps, seemingly unconscious, on the steps of Liverpool train station in London. And in four minutes, 35 people pass by and no one stops. And the question is, what would you do? Over and over, every single person asked that question, said, I would stop, I would help. And essentially, the, the issue is, we all underestimate the power of social norms. When you're in a situation, as soon as three people don't stop, the social norm is do nothing, mind your business, move along. And so what it means is most of us are good-hearted. Most of us live a life of good intentions, and almost all of us underestimate how those good intentions get undercut by social norms. Phil's study used a right-wing authoritarianism questionnaire to assess whether a preference for increasing uniformity and minimizing diversity could distinguish people who obey the request of unjust authorities from those who do not. We were interested in finding out how he and the study's lead author, Pairo Bocario, learned of the survey and what led them to choose it as a measure of people's willingness to submit to such unjust authorities. I was aware of a lot of research on social dominance, social dominance orientation. And, and so I was just aware of how this scale enables you to understand the extent to which people have this authoritarian orientation. That is, to believe authority is right. It's, it's, it's there, might makes right, rather than reason, reason makes, makes things right. And so the reason we put it in is we thought it's, it's more likely to show the impact of, of people's rejecting the authority's push toward com- conformity, toward complying, co- toward obeying, if they were low in right-wing authoritarianism. And if, if they were high, uh, a tendency to agree with authority. Uh, I, I, have to, I would have to say the fact that President Donald Trump still has 30 or 40% followers agreeing with him, I would bet every one of those is super high on right-wing authoritarianism. But there's been a big criticism that most college professors in psychology are excessively left-wing liberal. But this, this, has been, this has been a critique. And so I'm surprised there is not a scale of left-wing authoritarianism. I, I'm sure I would be high on that scale. In a 1999 interview, Phil credited Milgram's study with revealing how an authority figure can induce extreme forms of compliance in people who would normally never do so, and said of his own Stanford prison experiment that it shows what an institution, an agency, can do to induce similarly dramatic transformations in behavior. Ryan and I asked Phil to tell us about what contributions he sees Milgram's work is making to the field of social psychology. In all of my presentations, I say, Uh, most people only think Milgram ran one experiment, and that's because in his classic movie, Obedience, and I should say in parenthesis, Milgram always wanted to be a filmmaker. 
you know, and it was really novel in 1963 to have a film about research. There were some earlier ones that were very primitive, but Milgram's film was a really well done uh, documentary. And that was the reason why his research uh, created so much backlash on the ethics of his study. Had his research simply been in print, in reading it, you would not have any, there would have been none, I'm sure, no backlash. But seeing the people in in anxiety, in anguish, uh, complaining, uh, being hurt, being confused, I think that's what triggered backlash against, against Milgram. But in study 19, you, you come in and the experimenter says, uh, I'm sorry, but we're running late. Just have a seat. And you see somebody like you go all the way to 450 volts. In those circumstances, the, the average of, of oh, 65% goes up to 91%. Now, Milgram, to his credit, then did the opposite. He has you come in, sit down. Uh, we're running late. And he, you see somebody like you quit, refuse to, to go on. And, and leave. Under that circumstance, obedience drops from two-thirds to 10%. So I always say, this is the most dramatic finding in Milgram's. That is, uh, we are all social models, that what we do for good or for evil, when it's seen by other people, has a ripple effect, that they're more likely to do what they see us doing. And so, and again, it's, it, it's often without your awareness, the message is, be aware, be sensitive that what you do in any public domain where other people are seeing or watching can have an enormous impact for better or for worse. Bill and Pairo's study involved having a naive participant interact with two Confederates, or mock participants, as a fake researcher requested all three to behave unethically on his behalf. They found that people were more likely to defy unjust authority figures if the Confederates dissented, but only if the dissenters were physically present with participants. Not one participants were merely informed that some people had previously refused the researcher's request. In light of this, Doug and I asked Phil for his thoughts about the extent to which such social modeling might operate in online environments, such as on social media, in which people are not co-located with one another. Remote social modeling had, had very little effect. The impact had to be with somebody physically present. But more and more young people around the world live in on their cell phone, in their iPad, with remote acquaintances, remote partners, with remote influence agents. And so it might be that if we redid the study now using uh, young people, and may, maybe one of the selection criteria would be how frequently do you rely on social media, that we might get a different effect. That is, people are, we know people are in fact influenced by people they don't know, but uh, see uh, taking action or failing to take action on social media. Uh, one, one of the big problems now, however, is that in, in a lot of the research we're doing on um, the bystander effect, you now have people witnessing someone in distress. And instead of helping, what they do is they film it on their cell phone and they send it around to their friends. Almost like, hey, look, I was there. I saw this really interesting thing. Rather than, hey, look, here's this interesting thing, but I got to I got to sign off now because I got to go help somebody in distress. And in some cases, it's been horrific 
there was a case near uh, San Francisco a few years ago where after a high school party, a young woman who was drunk or drugged, it wasn't clear, was being gang raped by adult men. And a number of people saw it, filmed it, was sending it around on the internet. And she, she was badly hurt, had to go to the hospital. And police captain was furious. The police station was a block away. He said, if anybody had sent the image to us, we would have been there. We would have, we would have helped it. We would have prevented it. We would have put the, the, the men in jail who, who um, violated this young woman. So this is a new phenomenon. It's, it's not simply to pass someone by saying, for whatever reason, I, I'm, I'm a passive bystander rather than an active hero. Uh, it's even worse that you see it, you document it, but it's kind of disembodied. You're a passive bystander, but you take an action, and the action is to spread the evil so other people can, in quote, enjoy seeing a young a girl being gang raped. Social modeling was the strongest predictor of people's decision to disobey unjust authorities in Phil's study. Through it, people are more likely to follow the lead of others, even if they're complete strangers. Ryan and I wondered what might influence a person's decision to disobey when they're the first in a group to do so, instead of when they're merely following the lead of someone who had already exhibited that courage. So in the Me Too movement, there have been women for generations who were being sexually harassed by people in power, by their bosses, uh, and so at all, you know, we, we've seen this at all levels in sports, TV, in jobs, in all the mass media. And it wasn't until one person stood up. So this is a heroic agent. One person stood up and said, I'm willing to be shamed by admitting that I, ha- I was raped or I was sexually abused by my boss, by this, you know, business mogul. And the moment she did, then that liberated thousands and thousands of women from the silence of shame. And they said, yes, I now feel I could do it. Uh, And again, the same thing with the school shooting. There have been 18 school shootings this year alone. I mean, it was almost a shooting a day. And we only hear about the really dramatic ones that make the media. So the media conveys the fear because fear sells. So now I didn't know there are 18 shootings. I read the paper every day. But, you know, maybe if it's only two or three people get shot or just a student kills a teacher, doesn't even make the news anymore. But essentially, here is we are the only country in the world in which this is it's almost become normal. But students from uh, from the Florida high school where there was the mass shooting are the model of somebody who says, here's something wrong and we have to oppose it. Doug and I were interested in learning what kinds of qualities Bill believes might differentiate those who defy unjust authorities from those who elect to submit to authoritarian injustices, as well as what suggestions he might have for encouraging people to defy unjust authority figures. One of the fundamental things that Pierre Bakir and I tried to do is to say that in virtually every country in the world, children are trained, conditioned, to be blindly obedient to authority, first to religious authority, then to, to parental authority, uh, to family authority, uh, and then and then down to political authority, and then anybody who's authority at all. You just get somebody put on a, um, a cap that looks like an authority cap, and people will follow uh, whatever direction he, he gives us. This is this has been part of every educational system in the world. 
Now, we also have animals, right? Send your animal to obedience school so that they learn to sit and obey their master's commands. Sit, stand, jump, turn over, come for food, go away. So we pay to have our, our, our animal, mostly dogs, learn obedience. But I've argued that we have to send your children to disobedience school to be able to break the heuristic of, oh, this is an authority person for whatever reason, I make that judgment. And now I have to separate out the person, the figure, the image, the uniform from the message. So I have to be able to process the message separate, as if it were not coming from him, as if it was coming from just an ordinary person. And does it make sense to do what the message is asking me to do? And again, I think the heuristic is, if somebody in a position of authority if somebody has the label, the looks of authority, then our tendency is do do what they ask you to do. Uh, and now what we're saying is no, no. It's evaluate that message as if it was coming from just an ordinary person. The other part of that is I can refuse to do so. And in fact, the heroic part is I will expose that source as uh, immoral, illegal, unjust. And that's that's the heroic part. It's it's not heroic not to do something that somebody tells you to do something that you think is wrong, but then it's to challenge that authority openly and publicly. At the end of an episode from February on creating deceptive performance, Ryan and I invited listeners to contact us with questions that they might like us to ask Phil during our interview. Derek Bloomberg, a listener from Napier, New Zealand, wrote. Social psychology researchers often mislead people about the true nature of their experiments to get more realistic information about how people actually behave in the real world outside of the lab. I'm interested in hearing Dr. Zimbardo's views on the use of deception in research, the ethics of doing so, and how his views may have evolved over his career. In many cases, you can't openly give the participants all the information, uh, except if you're going to say, let's imagine, let's role play. But essentially, you want somebody to believe this is a real authority. Uh, you want somebody to believe uh, this is a victim uh, when it's a confederate. So in some cases, depending on what you're studying, the participant cannot have full knowledge of what the situation is. But then clearly in every study at the end, there is full ethical debriefing. You tell the participant Here's what we are finding up to now. Here's, here's how your data is helping us answer the following question, uh, hypothesis. And here was some untruths told to you. And then at the end, you say, if you wish, you can withdraw your data from our study. Critics have not heard that part. And therefore, you're giving power back to the participant, power back to what used to be called the subject. The power is the data. So they can say, oh, uh, I'm upset that I was, I was deceived uh, and I don't want you to use my data. And now, if everybody says that, then there is no study. The important thing is you give the person knowledge so they learn. I mean, essentially you say, here's what we're finding, here's what we did, here's how we did, here's why we did. And again, in the Stanford prison experiment, I personally spent two hours with all the prisoners and two hours with all the guards and then two hours more with all the prisoners and guards together saying, here's what we did, here's why we did it, here's what the deception we used, uh, here's, here's, what the, here's what we've learned so far. Uh, and then I had them all come back two weeks later. When we, in those days, it took that time to have the video, the video film uh, process. Now, in the Milgram study, they didn't have debriefing. The only thing they said at the end was, 
the person you thought you were harming was a Confederate, he did not ever get shocked. So that that relieves your worry, but you still have the guilt knowing that, yes, I was willing to give him, you know, 450 volts. Bill's response made Doug and I curious if his experience with institutional review boards, the committees which approve or reject research proposals involving human subjects, might have changed since his Stanford prison experiment in 1971. The current situation is that human subjects committees in every institution, colleges and elsewhere, are extremely conservative. Now, in part, it's, I have to say, it's not because they are really want to be good-hearted. It's they know that now the climate has changed, so that people will sue, sue the university, sue the institution, and so most human subjects committees, knowing that, prevent it from happening. What's terrible is that a lot of research in social psychology, for sure, is now imaginary studies. It seems to say, imagine you were in this situation, what would you do? And again. The, we now know there's a big gap between imagine, imagine what you would do when you're in a situation and what you would do. So we know, imagine what you do, 100% said, I would do the heroic thing. In the situation, you know, very few people do the heroic thing. We, we, we have not figured out a system where you could actually redo some of the earlier studies. So, for example, when I finished the Stanford Prison Study, a number of people like Elliot Aarons and others said, if I could have trained your guards in compassion training, in a T group training, they would not have done those bad things. And I actually went to the human subject committee and said, I'd like to redo the study only with that condition. And the original study would be the control. They said, can you guarantee that you would have a positive outcome? I said, no, if you guarantee, if you guarantee the outcome, you don't do the research. And they, and they turned it down. Again, what would happen if in our study if we had all females, female guards, female prisoners? That can't be done. Uh, what about if you had minorities? So there were so many interesting ideas that follow up. Some of, some of them I think I've outlined in my book, The Looser Effect, which is heavily about uh, full details of the Stanford Prison Experiment. Now, again, in Milgram's study, these were, these were men, not students, ages 20 to 50, a young men to middle-aged men, Ordinary people from, you know, he wanted to, he wanted his research to generalize to people from ordinary, quote, walks of life. I wanted my study to generalize from college students, smart, intelligent, normal, psychologically, physically healthy people, they're not psychology students, who, you know, very quickly induced to be the role they were playing as guard or as prisoner. When Ryan and I spoke with Phil in March of 2018, he had been busy arranging a hero roundtable to be held April 21st and 22nd in San Francisco. So we asked what his plans were for the event. April 21st and 22nd uh, in San Francisco, California, we are having the first ever here hero roundtable. We've done these in many other uh, countries around the world. And uh, I've been in, in Budapest, in Geelong, in Australia, in Nijmegen, in Flint, Michigan. But this is the first time we've ever done it in San Francisco. It's at the Marine Memorial Theater, which is a, a large, beautiful venue downtown. We have 20 or more incredible speakers, some of whom have been heroes in various ways. I can mention some. Some have done hero comic books, hero films. Uh, some have done research on heroism. And they'll all be presenting you know, in a TED-like TED style, I mean, 10 to 15 minutes 
So, for example, Dan Ellsberg is our senior whistleblowing hero. He was the person who, during the Vietnam War, was a right-wing activist, was a military guy uh, who discovered what's known as the Pentagon Papers, uh, the secret papers that had been collected by generals for 20 years. And in every case, they said, the war is unwinnable, but we do not know how to leave it. And he printed all of these forms, and then he sent it to liberals in Congress who refused to act on it because they said it would be espionage. And then he sent it to the New York Times, and the New York Times editors took a month to decide should they risk it. And they finally did, and it exposed the, the lie of Vietnam, exposed Richard Nixon, forced him to step down, and then it clearly ended the war earlier. So he'll be one of our speakers. Uh, another speaker is an incredible woman, Edie Eger, E-G-E-R, who was um, a, a teenager sent to the concentration camps in Auschwitz with her mother and her sister. And she's not only survived, but she was a heroine in the camp. And so we hope you'll come. It'll be two days. We'd love people to help donate. Uh, we we want to have as many uh, local high school students and junior high school students come that people sponsor them. And so I'm really looking forward to an exciting time with interesting, uplifting, inspiring stories. That was Phil Zimbardo discussing his article on the dynamics of disobedience, experimental investigations of defying unjust authority, published on July 13, 2017, in the journal Psychology Research and Behavior Management with Piero Bacchiaro. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with bonus content and other materials that Phil discussed during the show. Have you got a tip for parsing science? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Call us toll-free at 1-844-XPLORIT. That's 1-844-975-6748. Leave us a message and we might feature your call in a future show. Or drop us a line at parsingscience.org suggest. Next time in Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Nicole Crianza from Vanderbilt University. She'll talk with us about her interdisciplinary research into how a linguistic time capsule has carried over into how people talk today. I think that that humans, but also, you know, also everything, every organism that learns is, has these interesting signals of their past and, and of their history and of their genetics. We hope that you'll join us again.